This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. guest today is Jeff Raisley, president of Scientech, an organization that promotes science education. He is the president of the nonprofit club, and he's also on the foundation board. Jeff is also a director of five other nonprofit organizations and a partner in the ebook publishing company, Midsummer Books, where he provides writer coaching services. As an avid outdoorsman and recreational athlete, Jeff is the U.S. liaison for the Nepal-based Himalayan Expedition Company, Adventure Geo Tracks Limited. He leads trekking, mountaineering expeditions in Nepal and has solo kayaked around several Pacific Island groups. Jeff is the founder and former president of the Basa Village Foundation USA, that raises money for culturally sensitive development work in the Basa area of Nepal. Jeff retired from the practice of law in 2010. His JD law degree is from the Indiana University School of Law. As an attorney, he founded free legal clinics at two inner city churches and was the lead plaintiff in a class action requiring the cleanup of the White River after it was polluted by an industrial chemical spill. In addition to his law degree, he also holds a Master of Divinity from Christian Theological Seminary. Some of his many accolades include being made an honorary lieutenant colonel aide-de-camp of the Alabama State Militia, a Kentucky colonel, honorary citizen of Tennessee, and receiving the Man of the Year Award from the Arthur Jordan YMCA. Jeff is the author of many published articles and 10 books the latest of which is You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found, a memoir of suffering, grit, and love of the Himalayas and Basa Village. Jeff, welcome to The Voice of Leadership, and thanks for being my guest today. Well, thank you, Dr. Karen. It's great to be with you. I'm so glad that you are joining us, and I know that my listeners are really going to benefit from hearing your story. So, Jeff, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the show is because by the time that you were 40 years old, you were a millionaire, you had a very successful career as a senior partner in a small law firm, and you had a great family with your wife and children. So by all accounts, you had achieved the American dream. And yet, you went through a midlife crisis and discovered that, you know, traditional success was not enough. So I want to know, why was career, financial, and family success not enough? What was happening? (laughs) Well, Dr. Karen, it should have been enough. I suppose to some extent. Why it wasn't might have been uh, just my own unique neurology but what it felt like was everything was on the surface wonderful but i just had this sort of existential 
feeling there should be more, I should feel more satisfied. And so it was completely an internal issue. And what I eventually figured out with the help of my wife was that I was out of balance. I was paying too much attention to career, to my practice of law, to the business of the firm. I was also giving a lot to various nonprofits that I was involved with and to my kids. I was a very involved dad. I coach sports year round. And what I really wasn't paying attention to and giving to was my own need, desire for just for adventure, for travel, for getting out of my regular life. So my wife as therapy told me I ought to go take a hike and where she suggested I go was over to the other side of the world and hike to Mount Everest. And that started to put things back into balance. You know, it's really interesting to have your spouse say, take a hike (laughs) that could be taken in multiple (laughs) different ways. And especially if your spouse sends you way across the globe to the Himalayas and to a dangerous mountain like Mount Everest. So this puts you in a very unique category of person. So it looks like one of the steps that you took to achieve this greater sense of significance or this existential feeling that was missing is that you added adventure into your life by going actually on a physical adventure. And you know, it's interesting, Jeff, because I think a lot of corporate executives are also in the same boat of too much career, too much extracurricular, volunteer organizations, parenthood, whatever, and they may forget a part of themselves that's important. So tell us a little bit more about what other steps you took to to rebalance. Well, mentioning the the physical, I think, is very important. I grew up an athlete. I, I played varsity sports in high school and college, and I played recreational sports as an adult, coached uh, teams that my kids played on. But it was all of that was very competitive oriented, as opposed to just working out in a solitary way or engaging in an activity that was purely for me. And what I discovered when I went trekking in the Himalayas, or the main thing you have to do is put one foot in front of the other and make sure you don't fall off (laughs) a mountain face so you're putting your feet where they're supposed to be. And that concentration on just this very simple act of walking, of hiking, of taking steps, it really cleared my mind. It helped me put into perspective business, law, family, the other activities I was involved in. And uh, it gave me a sense of peace that I hadn't had for some time. And I think that, you know, that physical aspect of doing something that was physical, yet very simple. I could let my mind wander, or I could almost enter into a meditative state while I was hiking. So it sounds like part of this balance in life is not getting so much on the left brain cerebral side that we really forget the physical part of ourselves or the other aspects of who we are as persons. In other words, we really need to be stimulated and exercised in a 360 kind of way, not just become one-dimensional. 
Now, Jeff, you are amongst a very small group of people who have gone to Mount Everest. That's unusual. What can you tell us about what that experience is like? Why is it compelling to people to even go there? And I want to be clear, I have not climbed Mount Everest. I've been to the base camp several times, and I've climbed several mountains around Mount Everest. But I actually do not recommend people to climb Mount Everest or to attempt it unless they're very elite, professional-level climbers. People are dying on Mount Everest every year because there are far too many people attempting to do that, that have no business attempting to climb a 29,000-foot mountain, uh, highest place in the world. I want to make that point. But in terms of what it's like to climb a Himalayan peak, it's the most physically difficult and the most gratifying, exhilarating experience um, short of having a baby. You get this tremendous sense of accomplishment because it's really, really physically, mentally, spiritually challenging. I mean, it taxes you to your limits. And yet the views around you, the most spectacular vistas in the world. And the other thing is you're you're part of a team and the local people that are serving as your porters, your guides, and your cook are just delightful, wonderful people, which is what really hooked me into going back to Nepal over and over and starting a foundation over there. You know, I'm really glad to hear that the rest of us don't really have to go to Mount Everest in order to get this benefit. So that's actually good news to hear. And I'm also hearing from you that just the challenge of of taking these kinds of, of hikes and these kinds of treks puts you in a position to experience some spectacular teamwork and to work with some delightful local people and to have that the beauty, the views, the vistas, the perspective, I'll say, and perhaps the vision on life. So that's really an important aspect. And you said earlier that all of this brings a sense of peace as well. And in a very busy kind of professional life, having that peace is is clearly very important. Yeah, you said a sort of 360-degree sense of reality about yourself. That's exactly what I was trying to get at. I mean, I think we need to feel right about ourselves mentally or intellectually. You know, we need to have our minds engaged. I think we need to have our hearts, our emotions engaged. And I think we need to have our will, our sense of doing something worthwhile engaged. And so if you can put all three of those aspects together, in your life, that is what I would consider having yourself a a 360 degree sense of balance. And doing something like hiking in the Himalayas or solo paddling a kayak out in the sea, what that does is it just focuses it in a very concrete way. I think it's great if somebody has the opportunity and the means to engage in that kind of activity. But the important thing is not 
doing that activity, but the result of feeling that groundedness, of feeling engaged mentally, feeling a heartfelt sense of uh, connection with your family, your neighbors, your business, and also feeling uh, determined that you're willfully moving forward in life in a worthwhile, productive way. You know, you said some things, Jeff, here that I really want to sort of mention and capitalize on a little bit more. You talked about the mind, the heart and the will and the sense of groundedness. And I know that one of the things that you did, and you started to mention it a little bit ago, is not only were you trekking through the mountains just for yourself and what that entails, you also started philanthro treks. In other words, you started this foundation, this organization, and you were going there to also give back to others who in many ways were less fortunate. And how did that make a difference in your life, having this philanthropy aspect to it? There's a lot of research that shows that people who give feel better about themselves. And so that's part of it. I feel like I I have been given much in life. I started out with loving parents in a small town that protected me. And so I have a sense of gratitude that I want to give back to my world. But I've also just discovered that I feel better when I'm doing something that benefits other people. And that sense of balance that we've mentioned, there's the balance of the self, but there's also balance within community. And if you're completely focused on, oh, I want to be a better person, I want to be happy, and it's just about me, well, that's narcissism. To achieve Really, the balance that we're talking about, I think it requires community involvement. You know, you can certainly get that through your job, your business to some extent, but there's also the wider community. Look around and there are so many people who are less fortunate than you and I and your listeners. And so there's, you know, a jillion different ways to get involved with the community in a giving way, which has great psychological benefits for you. So it's mutual. You give and you receive. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that this concept is probably useful in our world today. We might even see less suicidal people, less despondent and depressed people if there was more connection to community, and if there was also a reaching out and a sense of giving to others. So I think it's an incredibly important concept that you're bringing up and that you're mentioning. So Jeff, let me ask you this too. In in your trips to the Himalayas, you mentioned that the people are very poor, and yet they have a deep sense of happiness and generosity. And I know that a lot of times in Western cultures, there's a tendency to believe that happiness comes from financial wealth, possessions, and of course, you personally had both. So what have you learned from the Himalayan people about how they're able to be happy with so little material possessions and conveniences? What's the difference? Yeah, Nepal is the poorest country outside of Africa. It's the average annual income is about $400. So if you could imagine trying to live for a year 
on four hundred dollars. It's it's shocking. And yet, <laughs> when I hang out with uh, my friends, especially my Nepali friends who live in the villages up in the mountains, I am astounded every time I've been over there at how delightfully happy and pleasant the local people are. A big part of it, I think, is that they have certain values that they live by, one of which is kindness towards the stranger. As a tourist or a trekker or a climber, I'm a guest when I come to their village and they treat me like a guest. And so there's that aspect. But the other aspect is they're so very much integrated into community. You know, we, we Americans, you know, have the value, this individualism and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And I think that's a, you know, that's a very worthy value in a lot of situations. But when you're in need, it's not such a great value to have as a priority. And so in the villages, they really take care of each other and their their identity, like if you live in Basa village, your identity is more being a member of Basa than your individuality. In fact, their names, their tribal group is called Rai, the Rai people. Every member of Basa Village's last name is Rai. They can recite their neighbors for the entire village five generations back because all of the families are so interconnected and integrated into the community. You know, that's, uh, you know, we might think, well, maybe they're out of balance. They're too far that way. They would certainly think that we're too individualistic. But anyway, I think, again, you know, finding that balance of being integrated into your own community in worthwhile ways, along with having that sense of, of self and being a fully grounded person, that's another aspect of balance. Getting sort of this picture in my mind that the people in the Himalayan region have a tremendous amount of wealth that we often sort of overlook and maybe don't pay attention to, such as the wealth of each other. Collectively, they have more together than one individual has alone. That's wealth right there, just the relationships and what they can create together as opposed to in a solitary sense. And they have the wealth of, I'll say, God's creation, the beauty of the environment, as you gave us a a little bit of a window on that. And sometimes I think in the Western cultures, we forget to look at the wealth of the beauty of the environment. And the example that always strikes me is when I'm flying on airplanes and there's such beautiful views outside the plane window, and yet almost every window on the plane is slammed shut with people on their electronic devices. So they miss the clouds. They miss all the sun setting or rising or whatever as you're flying along. I just find that amazing that we close off wealth that's free, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. And just to give you an example of that difference, the Rai people of Basa think that there is spirit in everything. So we would call them animus because everything has spirit. God is everywhere and everything. 
and it gives them this tremendous respect for the environment, you know, more deep than anything I had experienced before. And just as a little anecdote, I was walking down a trail with my friend and guide, Ganes Rai, and there was a rock in the middle of the trail, and I started to kick the rock out of the way. And Ganes gently took my shoulder, stepped in front of me, and moved the rock to the side with his boot. And so I sort of chuckled and said, Ganes, what, what's, what did you do that for? And he said, well, the rock has spirit too. And I just wanted to move it respectfully. That's kind of an extreme, almost humorous case, but it illustrates how much more sensitive Ganes was to the environment than I am. And I have deepened my own sense of environmentalism and have uh, you know, tried to enjoy the beauty of the natural environment. I'm looking out my back window as we're speaking and enjoying the view of trees and, and river that I have, but also it's made me want to take care of the entire environment of our world. And these, these people who, compared to us, have so little, are much less educated than we are, and yet, in some sense, are so much more advanced in their appreciation and protection of the environment. Those are wonderful examples. Let me extend that a little bit. I know that when your wife first told you to, to take this hike, so to speak, that she wanted you to reconnect with both your adventurous and your spiritual self. And I know that you have a master's degree in divinity, and you've given us an example of what you've learned from the Himalayan and Basa people about spirituality. What else have you learned from them that's enriched your own spirituality? Well, we've really touched on it in that sense of community, recognizing the value of other people, recognizing the value of being in a family, in a community, and how important relationships are to us. And then the actual, the physical environment, that sense of God is all around us everywhere. If we take that attitude towards the world, it just creates a deeper sense of respect, you know, respect for other people, but also respect for animals, plants, air, water, ground. And I think given the threats of a warming environment, global warming, climate change, we really need that. And so whether you look at that scientifically or as a matter of citizenship or in a spiritual sense, whatever level and way you connect and care about our environment, I, I think is really important now and in the future. So Jeff, why don't you tell us about your latest book? That book is the one that's called You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found. And I know there's also a subtitle as well. What's this book about? And what will readers gain by reading it? Well, thanks. I think it's going to be my last book about experiences in the Himalayas because I think I may have done, had my last adventure over there. And so on one level, what the book is, is each chapter is about a, a different trekking or mountaineering expedition that I was involved with. And then it 
tries to reach out and create for the reader a sense of what it's like to experience these various tracks and mountaineering expeditions, but also there's a lot of information about the local history and about the culture and the different ethnic tribal groups, art, architecture, etc. And then the very last chapter, which is the same title as the book, You Have to Get Lost Before You Can Be Found, is about a particular misadventure I had where I left my guide and group behind and went off on my own to climb this mountain, which is a very easy climb. It's only 14,000 feet high. But I got lost because clouds rolled in and I could only see about 10 feet in front of me. And so when I was trying to come down off the mountain, I couldn't find the trail that the guide had showed me to get to the summit. And so I ended up spending about 10 hours or so lost and alone. And finally, I did find my way back to our base camp. Sort of the moral of the story was encapsulating that feeling of being alone and how when you're so disconnected from your community it's really kind of an awful feeling and how a meaningful life really is by being engaged with your community and so when i found my my team back at base camp it went from this sort of panicky angsty, disconnected feeling to happy. This is good. I'm with my team. I'm part of this group. We're going to drink moonshine and toast my silly misadventure and, you know, hug each other. And so that contrast is what I bring out in this very particular experience and story but that underlying meaning is exactly what you and I have been talking about. You know, that's a very powerful uh, metaphor and story. And of course, it really happened to you. And I think sometimes when we're living our corporate lives in the United States, we may not have that dramatic experience on the mountain to drive home the need for community. And so by the time people realize they need it, They may already be in a crisis, so to speak. So it's great that you have captured that in um, a story that can be shared and that people can apply before they actually, quote, need it, so to speak. So, Jeff, let me ask this. Knowing what you know now and having had all the experiences that you've had, if you were dialing your life back to, let's say, your days as an attorney and before, what would you do differently in building your life and career? Well, (laughs) maybe I should have uh, taken that hike. My wife uh, told me I should take uh, a few years earlier, and I probably would have saved her a lot of trouble of of having to cope with uh, my whining (laughs) about uh, how I wasn't feeling, you know, completely satisfied with our life. But other than that, 
you know, I, I've certainly made some mistakes that if I could go back and redo how I handled a particular case or redo how I handled a relationship that was broken and that I, I wish had uh, behaved better and more respectfully, sensitively. But in terms of overall, not much. Like I said, I was lucky enough to be born into a loving family in a small town that was a protective place to live. And my two boys are both grown and have careers of their own. And Alicia and I are still married and most of the time happy that we are all these many years later. So, yeah, really not much in the way of regret. That's phenomenal. That's fantastic. And looks like you intervened at least early enough that you've gotten a lot of positive value in the subsequent years. So before I ask you my last question, if someone wants to purchase your book or some of your other books, because you've written 10 books, why would they purchase? You have to get lots before you can be found or some of your other books. Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. They're all available on Amazon. They can be ordered in any bookstore. And I have a website that has a link to each book as well as to uh, Adventure Geotrex, the Himalayan adventure company I, I still work with, and the Basa Foundation. And it's just, it's my full name, www.jeffreyraisley.com. Okay, fantastic. That's phenomenal. That way people can reach you if they would like to do so. So, Jeff, as you know, my primary audience is executive business leaders. What words of wisdom do you want to leave for them about creating an integrated life of significance? Well, thanks, Dr. Karen. I really appreciate this opportunity to get to know you a bit. And what I would like your audience and listeners to understand from what we've been talking about is first of all live a balanced life don't narrow yourself to the point where you're risking your marriage or you're risking your company because you're unhappy and you're not feeling full fully satisfied so you know find that balance where you're into your business you care about the people you work with, you tend to your family, but you also find time for yourself, whether it's physical exercise, meditation, going around the world to climb a mountain, a solo kayak in the ocean, um, whatever it is that feeds that need that you have that's just uniquely you, don't forget about that. Okay, well, that's phenomenal. So, I guess what I will say to my um, listeners is you've heard it from Jeff Raisley. He's lived the American dream and he's also figured out a way to have a more balanced life by focusing on the 360 self, that left brain and the right brain, the mental, the heart and the physical as well. And so to you, I say from Jeff, do the same. Have a life that's well integrated. Don't overdo a good thing and make it a bad thing. 
So, Jeff, thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate all the insights that you've shared with my audience. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Dr. Karen. It's, it's been delightful talking to you, and I hope we get to do it again someday. That would be phenomenal. I'd love to have you back. And so to everyone else, stay tuned. We'll see you next time, and maybe we'll see Jeff too. Thanks again. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.